0: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is indeed your exhausted host, Daniel Horowitz, here on Blockbuster Supreme Court Day. It is late Wednesday, the 27th, or actually, did I just say Wednesday? I am. I'm I'm sorry about that. It's the 26th. Just to show you where my mind is, when it rains, it pours, so... Immigration and the courts are probably my two biggest issues. I wrote a book about the intersection between the two, and now they're all coming and joining together, both from a policy end and from a court end. The policy end, what Congress is doing, I'm going to have to address that later this week um, because I don't have time. But as it relates to the court, there's a lot going on here. And I know a lot of you have seen my article On at least the travel ban case, I haven't gotten a chance to write on the pregnancy center case, but obviously in case you haven't seen, we won the travel ban case as conservatives. Um, And on the pregnancy center case, the court ruled five to four that a state cannot create a law and enforce it against uh, private pregnancy centers to serve as stewards for the state to go and – essentially disseminate their information on abortion. Say, look, we don't provide abortions, but um, hey, you can go to such and such place. No, no, no. You, you, you cannot force that. You cannot coerce speech. That's a violation of the First Amendment. Good rulings. So a lot of you might be wondering, you know, the Supreme Court, this seemed to be a pretty good term at the Supreme Court. And even Kennedy has been pretty good. Hey, Daniel, does this mean maybe you're wrong? Maybe the courts aren't irremediably broken. Um, Maybe we're we're doing pretty good. And there's a lot to say on this. There's a lot, a lot to say on this. And I want to try to unpack it one by one. It's kind of like a stock market. You know, you could look at a snapshot of one 30-minute period where the market went up. And undoubtedly, the market went up. But you got to look at a broad trend. And I've said this before, but I think today's ruling only bolsters my point that John Roberts, the chief justice, writing the majority opinion in the travel ban case, it was a good opinion. It was better than I expected, especially getting Kennedy on board. But nonetheless, once again, when you look at Thomas's concurrence, which is really where the true Constitution lies, you see that the left is still poking holes and they're still ratcheting up this one directional liberal jurisprudence, even as it relates to this. And broadly speaking, we still have a problem that the lower courts are able to grant standing to, to quote, this ACLU lawyer let 1000 immigration lawsuits blossom and it just shuts down national security national sovereignty policy and you know even even the good justices still entertain those arguments just to give you a sense of how radical this is the meat and potatoes of this ruling as i noted monday you know you guys are really the he- at, 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 ahead of the curve by listening to the show, we were using these very same statutes to say that the president has authority to shut down all cross-border migration. 1182 grants the president the full authority to shut down immigration, period. So just the fact that it took 16 months to affirm that statute and still four justices say no... And still almost every lower court says no. That in itself shows we have a problem, but it's worse than that. It's worse than that. In some ways, the lower courts already won. Trump was forced to permanently modify and water down twice his original proclamation. And the original one didn't even get its day in the Supreme Court. The lower courts won, and he he relented on that. Because of the lower courts. So again, we're seeing today's ruling only bolsters my point that you see the lower courts are wrong, and yet they're still accorded this power to grant standing to absurd cases, frivolous constitutional lawsuits, frivolous public policy lawsuits, apply nationwide injunctions, and Shut down. I mean, th- this was this was the most expeditious that it took only sixteen months. Many of these other cases, the recent case in Jennings, where a stinking district judge in in uh, California shut down all, you know, detention after six months and forced us to hold bond hearings for very dangerous criminal aliens, that happened for five years before we got relief from the Supreme Court. Just yesterday, a lot of you might not have noticed the district judge in Arizona originally had a permanent uh, temporary injunction, a tro, Ninth Circuit upheld it, Supreme Court uh, denied cert, and now they issued a permanent injunction against Arizona's law denying driver's licenses to the DACA legal aliens. I mean, that's radical as anything, and the Supreme Court is allowing that to stand. So, let me start off with an analogy, as always. You love my analogies. You know, let's say... And I think it's very appropriate because we're talking about sovereignty. Let's say uh, an invading army invades our country, and one after another we start losing states. California, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, it creeps westward, and it really looks bad. It looks like there's nothing stopping it, and we're going to lose the entire country. And lo and behold, and then you're like, well, maybe if we could salvage it, maybe it's just five states in the Far East. And lo and behold, surprisingly, we actually win, and we salvage 27 states. Heck, let's say we salvage 40 states. Is that a win? No, that's a devastating loss. You just lost 10 states. That's something you cannot afford to lose. My thesis on this issue is that very, very recently, just in a snapshot, we're winning a number of battles, but those victories actually portend the fact that we're losing the war because what it means is that the the radical nature of the law schools, the legal organizations suing, and the lower courts – are so radical and they're entering into such core issues that should never be justicable, that should never have to be defended in court, that the fact that they're there is we are we – are, our backs are against the wall. We are down to cases that we cannot afford to lose. Yes, Masterpiece in its limited sense was a victory. Yes, this was a victory in the travel ban. But imagine if it were the other side, just one more justice – It would be devastating. And it's not over, as as we're going to explain. Just today, as if on cue, 17 attorneys general or 18 announced that they're suing Trump's border policies, that somehow they can get standing for that. A state could sue for immigration policies, um, and they're going to forum shop. And I'm almost positive they're going to win. I believe it's in the D.C. circuit, which is terrible. And we're going to have the same problem, and it's going to be put on hold. The whole separation of family policy itself comes from Dolly G, which has been prevailing for um three years already. Three years. A stinking district judge that was forum shopped. That she could put a nationwide injunction, even though 72% of the border incursions are not in the Ninth Circuit jurisdiction. They're they're in the Fifth Circuit. Which is why Thomas's concurrence was so important. Um, Not just because it was a side issue that's important, but it actually cuts to the core of ensuring that the majority opinion on the merits is actually durable. He's saying these are the same idiot judges that we allow to put nationwide injunctions. He's like nationwide injunctions, as he calls them, universal injunctions, are not constitutional. You need a statute. Meaning – you know, a lot of times we're saying jurisdiction stripping or like write a statute to say they can't do nationwide injunctions. As Thomas accurately says, it's the other way around. The default is they don't have the power unless they're authorized. And actually, in a footnote, Thomas went so far as to, to kind of question or intimate in, in, on some level that it could be theoretically, even if Congress would explicitly grant a district court the power to put a nationwide injunction. They would have to think as independent judges that they would have to follow the Constitution, and they likely don't have that power. Article 3 only gives you the judicial power over cases and controversies. By definition, it can't be outside of your jurisdiction. So what we have to understand here is the, the Warren era – You know, where judicial supremacy really took off in the 50s. That began on cases that we could afford to lose. And in fact, often even in very laudable cases where the outcome was good. Brown v. Board of Education. We all agree with the outcome. Certainly, we don't want, you know, state schools, um, you know, segregating people by race, obviously. But some of the jurisprudence behind it was built upon bastardizing the 14th Amendment from an expression of negative rights to this legal positivism that you have kind of positive privileges. Even very important privileges, but they're not quite right sometimes. Life, liberty, and property, you know, which is why you need the 15th Amendment to, to vote. Vote is very Voting is very close to a right, but not quite an unalienable right. It's probably the, the top privilege and immunity. And you needed the 15th Amendment really to flesh that out. But over time, what happened was these opinions transmogrified into these judicial beasts that they now become tyrannical. And we're now at the point where we're actualizing the nightmare of our founders where the lower courts are starting to get into our heart and lungs. And you can't. They only have to win once. We have to win every time. They're defensive victories. We blocked the pass into the end zone. Now they have another 100 shots at it, or 1,000 shots. Let a 1,000 immigration lawsuits blossom. See, I'm going to link to this in show notes. I have 16 quotes from early founders or case law stating how It is the most settled area of law and legal theory and international law and laws of nation states rooted in sovereignty, known as the plenary power doctrine, that the political branches alone get to determine who comes in, any conditions on their coming in, and they could remove anyone they don't like that they let in so long as they didn't naturalize and become a citizen. Right? That is as firmly embedded in our judicial tissue as anything. And that's kind of a paraphrasing from a 1950s decision from um, Felix Frankfurter. So I'm going to, I have 16 quotes. And something this iron, there is nothing this ironclad in law. Nothing this ironclad. And yet, even then, they're screwing with it and the courts are you know the lower courts are ripping 90% of it out even the supreme court's ripping starting to rip 20 30% out and we're like well at least we had a victory it didn't go the other way that, that's true but it portends a broader problem keep in mind to begin with denial of entry is the lowest aspect of immigration on the totem pole it's the, it's the lowest hanging fruit it's the easiest People that never even entered the country to claim a right to enter. So this was a good opinion. I mean Roberts hemmed and hawed less than I thought he would, and the hemming and hawing he did, it seems like, was to get Kennedy on board. And he didn't categorically say he agrees with the hemming and hawing. He just says there are many other mitigating factors here that make Trump's thing not even – Subject to the plaintiff's arguments, not that he was necessarily validating their arguments even if it was discriminatory, but we don't know yet. It wasn't fully affirmed. Like Thomas's, for the first paragraph of his concurrence, it's very terse because then he goes on to talk about nationwide injunctions. But the first paragraph, he does deal with this, and is very clear that there is no standing to sue for est- the, uh, an establishment clause violation discrimination against religion to immigrate. You know, done. There is not a single justicable way to attack 1182. F the president's delegated authority, and as the Thomas says, the president has executive authority as well. I mean, everything you've heard here, Thomas said in a matter of a paragraph. But he, you know, he hinted to it. He cited his some of his previous uh, opinions. So. What I'm trying to show you is how even in a good opinion, we don't win Rose. We don't win Obergerfels. because the left controls the legal profession at large and the lower courts, especially empowered by this forum shopping nationwide injunction thing, which is the linchpin to it, that they're going to come back for more, even though this is better. I know a lot of you are probably thinking, man, this is Daniel Redux 2.0 of what he said with um, – the masterpiece case. No, this was much better than the masterpiece opinion because the masterpiece, it wasn't just that, you know, Kennedy didn't address other cases. He explicitly said, quote, that as a general rule, unquote, you cannot deny service to homosexuals um, with your private property. So he actually said it. And that's the problem. Here, it's not that Robert said, as a general rule, you get standing to sue. As a general rule, if this would be discriminatory, a um, president cannot block Muslim immigration or predominantly Muslim countries if it didn't have waivers and exceptions. And, you know, he, he just said, given that it has all these, your argument doesn't even start. So I understand why I don't generally have a problem with what he did. I think it was generally a good opinion. But again, because it was a consensus builder with Kennedy, because that's kind of his attitude as Chief Justice, it's not you know, I was reading this as, as an ACLU lawyer. If I were an ACLU lawyer looking at this, it's pretty strong, but it's not going to shut down many of their other avenues. And remember, this is just denial of entry. What about deportation? Yet the DeMaya opinion from Gorsuch earlier this term, let's not forget about it, that I think it plants the seeds very strongly for due process on deportation – you know, that – even the Supreme Court, and there's a number of cases. There was a smaller one in Peroria of these sessions um, where only Alito was on the right side of, um, granting all these opportunities to get another bite at the apple to litigate against deportation. And this is this is really very, you know, very, very new. So you know what I'm saying? This is not like, Daniel, be happy with what you get. No, no, plenary power should be 100%. So – with that said, with that said, this was much better than I expected, but it underscores the point that we should use this not to sit on, on our laurels because there's a hundred other lawsuits. I mean they're they're heck they're saying DACA's the law of the land and the Supreme Court's being very slow to take it up and in fact they denied Arizona's you know Arizona's getting crushed by it. you know we this a sane Congress would go ahead and react to this by saying, now even the Supreme Court agrees the lower courts are responsible. We're gonna take immigration away from them. We're gonna we're gonna explicitly express the sense of Congress that they don't have the general injunctive relief authority and signal that to the president to stand up to them. And I would argue that even without Congress, the president needs to be bold. He needs to take Thomas's concurrence. Thomas said the court, the Supreme Court needs to deal with this. I think Trump should force the issue with the Supreme Court by picking one of these cases and refusing to apply it outside of those plaintiffs let them come and sue you and let it go to the supreme court eventually but anyway let, let's uh, let's unpack this let's unpack this so you know just just as a baseline it's important to understand what the court was dealing with and what the court wasn't dealing with can a president, through delegated authority, or can Congress, through its own authority, deny entry to people based on race, religion, creed, political views, um, their color hair, how many times a day they go to the bathroom, or any other factor? That was not before the court. That's that's not what they were dealing with. Um, the answer to that question should be absolutely yes – and the fact that, you know, from reading the opinion, even the better opinion, I, I um I only have confidence in Clarence Thomas that he would rule that way. The other ones didn't sign on to his concurrence. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. You can't read too much into it. But the fact that as a country, we don't understand that, and this court opinion didn't affirm that, this is a very big problem. Um, you know. There's a lot of good reasons why we want to keep people out and you can't wall that off. That must be debated politically. And again, it's not keeping out like some sort of like, you know, discriminatory and invidious act where we're actively banning people. We're not doing any we're here minding our business. It's like if I say, "Stop banning people from knocking on your door and coming into your house." Well, you know, I'm not banning them. I just I'm just not going to open the door. I just don't feel safe. I don't want to let them in. You know, that's sovereignty. That is sovereignty. And it's something that we cannot afford to lose. You know, think about it. Let's say the government made it its policy to, to deny a visa to anyone who – Expresses a view that Jews are apes or pigs, you know, is that justicable? So, a so question both on the standing and on the merits. The answer should be, of course, no. And, but that that was not the case. Even Trump's first travel ban was never. It was just seven. Predominantly Muslim countries that still only covered about 8% of the world's Muslim population, as Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts noted. Um, you know, it was and it was only temporary. But an important point I want you to take out from this podcast, I know, and I'm sorry I don't have this so organized. I'm just so exhausted, but I wanted to give this over because I know a lot of you are, you know, trying to discern, you know, what's good, what's not. What what comes out from this? I want you to understand that the lower courts already won in in a very big case, in the sense that they forced Trump to relent. As I note in my article, there's a couple of very important um, walkbacks in Trump's third order, which is the one that was being ruled ruled upon and upheld today. The president. So first off the the first order dealt with refugees it put caps on refugees and it had a provision prioritizing christians that was removed that's very important you know the courts were saying that that's discriminatory and again it should be clear there is no such thing as discrimination when it comes to immigration it's a very important point but that was removed and by the way, refugee law by definition is that. In fact, there was something that the Democrats championed for years called the Lautenberg Amendment, which was a process through which we weed out Muslims and bring in Christians and Jews from Iran. And I heard from from an official who works for one of these refugee resettlement groups, um, Hyas, that it was so detailed they would ask the person, when did you find Jesus? And again, the whole point was because that is – The point of refugee status, you have a persecutor and then a group that's being persecuted. You have to make sure the guy is from the group that's being persecuted, and by definition, they're an ethnic or religious minority. So you're bringing in the minority. You're not bringing in the majority religion. Syrian migration was banned outright in the first order and kind of indefinitely. That was taken out. There were a bunch of waivers and exceptions put in this um, order. Uh, Trump took out Iraq and Sudan, and and um, he added Chad, but then later took it off when they started sharing data. And unlike in the first order... It only applied to prospective people, not people already got a visa. Now, some people are like, "Well, that's more hardcore. But, you know, look, I mean, we've given visas to a lot of people that shouldn't have been given visas. Now, to be clear, Trump can't deport people categorically from a country he doesn't want. Congress can do that. Um, But these were people that went out of the country and came to come back in. Just because you have a visa, a green card, it doesn't give you a right to enter I mean this is settled case law that that's considered an entry not a not a removal so um you know but we ceded that ground I mean everyone seemed oh no that you can't do so he he relented on that so we lost that I mean but you know there's a gonna come a time when we need to do that and I'd argue that time's already here. But notice how – and if you read Robert's whole case, it was all built around the fact – and this is true. If you look objectively, I don't care where your views are. I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, hate Trump, love Trump. This order was all about – it's not even a ban anymore. It's just enhanced vetting from countries that are either on the State Department terror list, were downright at war with them practically like Iran, um, or there's – There's literally no system. I mean, Venezuela, North Korea aren't even Muslim countries. I mean, there's no data. It's really a vetting information sharing thing. And as Roberts noted, uh, as some of them cooperated, it, it worked. And, you know, he put them back on, you know, travel. It didn't at all touch on the philosophy of we've had record number, record migration from the Middle East. A lot of Sharia adherent immigrants looking at what has happened to Europe, we need a slowdown. Am I confident that would be upheld? I'm almost positive Kennedy wouldn't support it. Roberts again, I don't know if he wrote it this way just to get Kennedy, or he believe you know he's wishy washy too. It's hard to tell, and, and you know even Alito and Gorsuch, I don't know for sure. I only know for sure about Thomas that he understands the plenary power doctrine. I mean. You know, some might come away like, look, you know, I'm happy this victory. I have no desire to, you know, this wasn't a Muslim ban and we're not trying to do a Muslim ban. But that's kind of a straw man argument because that presupposes a, a reality that doesn't exist that somehow our tradition is mass migration for the Middle East. And then, you know, Trump comes along and he just wants to shut off all Muslim immigration. It's really the opposite. It's really, we never had much migration. Suddenly, it's the fastest growing migration. And it needs to be slowed down. I mean, it's not a matter of vetting, as we we've talked about this for years. It's a, it's it's a cumulative pro- problem of anti assimilation and you know values that are fundamentally incompatible. And we need to preserve that prerogative to exercise that sovereign power, and that's a very big problem. I mean, think about it. If a Democrat wins the White House, you know, next time and comes in and says, "All right," We're going to quadruple Muslim immigration. So, does that mean a president can't directly say, um, come later on, look, you know, this is too much. We got to slow it down. Because he directly, in that case, he'd directly be broadly addressing more Muslim migration rather than just very mechanical nation state, you know, sharing data type of thing. You know, that was not affirmed today. It wasn't directly denied that power but i'm just telling you the power is even a lot broader than roberts was making it out to be and the lower courts already almost won by default by you know laying that marker down which is very very disturbing very disturbing um by the way i just want to get to one point the fact that even something this limited We have four justices that don't believe in sovereignty. I mean if you look at the pregnancy center case, the masterpiece case, and this case together, you look at Sotomayor and most of these lower court judges. Basically, they're saying that Americans – that there is a religious liberty establishment clause claim to immigrate to this country, but yet – Americans with their own private businesses don't have a religious liberty right to their own property. It literally takes property rights and sovereignty and just flips it 180 degrees upside down, down, inside out. It's unbelievable. And you know, just so I don't forget to get to this point, um, just important for all you to know when when Sotomayor compares this to Kuramatsu and internment of the Japanese, just understand that the very person who wrote the dissent in Korematsu, the champion of due process rights, Robert Jackson, he was the lead prosecutor in the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trial, this man addressed in Shaughnessy V. Meze in 1953 an immigration case, and he said – Quote, due process does not invest any alien with a right to enter the United States, nor confer on those admitted the right to remain against the national will. Notice the second half of the clause, by the way. It's not just denial of entry. It's also um, the right to deport, and there's no due process in deporting. That is the dissenting view in Kuramatsu, But again, they, they conflate American citizens with foreign nationals. And foreign nationals, not just as foreign nationals, but in the context of an immigration claim, they have due process in terms of punishing them in other ways, obviously, but not not as it relates to sovereignty. Um, okay, so let, let's go through some other things. In this case, he did note <clears throat> that it was a 12-page explanation from the administration on why they had the authority and what they planned to do, and he actually said it was more detailed than any of the other 43 times that 212-F was invoked, statute 1182, Um, does that mean, let's say, a president just didn't give sufficient reason? Also, he was saying that it was inter-cabinet work with so many agencies, and they did a good job. Well, let's say you don't feel they did a good job. Again, it's hard to tell. That was the case, so he he made it. Um, And just to give you a sense of how absurd it was that he he felt the need to entertain every aspect of the left, and and he did a good job. That's what a majority opinion has to do. It just what, one of the arguments, um, and I think some of the lower courts entertain this was that it's only temporary authority because the the statute says he can only suspend, and suspend usually means temporary. But literally, the next three words says for as much time as he should choose I meaning it, you it, it's just insane this is what i'm trying to say is if we have to spend 16 months litigating this to get a 5 to 4 opinion on something as black and white as 1182 it's just insane um so that that's what bothers me about it so it's hard to tell how much of an avenue he leaves open um presumably you know, they could pretty easily get around this if they wanted to do what I'm suggesting on the border. But again, you know, Thomas gets it right. Thomas and his concurrence said very tersely Section 1182F does not set forth any judicially enforceable limits that constrain the president. Period. The biggest problem I had with Roberts was standing. Um, you know, the government argued that there's obviously no standing, you can't review a denial of visa. Meaning it's not just on the merits you're wrong, that there's no First Amendment or violation of statute or whatever. It's that you don't have standing. There's no Article Three standing. So Roberts explicitly said that I don't need to resolve that in order to address it here, and I'm going to skirt it. And again, I understand that some of that might have been for Anthony Kennedy. I don't know. I have no way of knowing that. But it is disturbing because – Again, this is part of my thesis. If you're going to be supreme over the other two branches, as our body politic treats the Supreme Court, you need to be supreme over the lower courts. And you can't allow, you know, if you're going to do surgery on the cancer and you take out even 95% of it, those spores are going to grow very quickly. You got to cut it all out and you got to see what the lower courts are doing and you got to go after the standing issue. Otherwise, you're going to keep having this problem. They don't have standing, period. Thomas said this very clearly. He said the the plaintiffs cannot raise any other First Amendment claims since the alleged religious discrimination in this case was directed at aliens abroad. Done. I don't like how he entertains it. Now, he doesn't categorically say they should have standing, you know, if if, if the whole case relied on that. But again, it's not resolved here, and that's a problem. You know – I just want you to know I understand being narrow. You might say that's part of being, you know, a judge, case and controversy. But you can't a Supreme Court justice can't be narrow when the lower courts are being broad. They got to tamp that down. You know, that's not being restrained. That's not judicial restraint because, you know, the judiciary is not restrained. And and if you're the chief justice, you need to restrain it. So um, you know, this is just going to tie up the standing issue. Is going to just tie us up in knots that foreign nationals have standing. That is a very big point. And then on the on the merits of the First Amendment as well. I mean, you know, the 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 language of Roberts was for our purposes today. We assume that we may look behind the face of the proclamation to the extent of applying rational basis review. So it, it's it's. It's clear he wasn't definitively saying that there is somewhat of a First Amendment claim, that there is some limitation on what a president does, even if he's discriminatory. But he was just trying to say there is no discrimination, and it's certainly very sane and well done and well thought out and, you know, uh, passes the rational basis test, which, as he noted, um, very few government policies don't pass the rational basis test. But again, you know, what would happen if he, you know, if the president would just say, "Look, we have we have I don't want to become like Europe. We we can't have this much immigration from the Middle East. We got to we got to cut it down more." I don't know what he would say. I mean, it it that it wouldn't be covered by what he says. Um, you know, and and they would certainly relitigate that. Um, but but you know, that's that, that's what the standing part. Now, you know, Anthony Kennedy, obviously in his concurrence, he was like, "You know, Trump's a bigot, but you know, there's nothing I can do because I'm not as bad as the other leftists, willing to look at things. You know, willing to look at um, his Twitter comments or whatever." <sighs> what what bothers me here is, even in the good outcome, you see the problem. This one directional ratchet. I I, I write about in my book this legal hocus-pocus, this legal black magic that even as the plenary power doctrine survived the Warren era, they started in the 70s, 80s, 90s. They started dropping little – so for 100 years, the courts would be like, over no area of laws, there are more power, and the courts have no jurisdiction to even look and look into this. They started to like pepper those decisions with generally speaking or most of the time or – so So one of the things that um, happened in the 72 case of Mandel is that they said as long as it's facial, applied facially neutrally. That clause is bullcrap, and that was added in, and that in itself is a violation of everything before it. But the problem is all the lower courts were starting – everything with Mandel and then getting worse from there and just adding to it. And, and this is my concern. It's like Roberts did a pretty good job of of preserving the plenary power doctrine. Ju- and, and But again, not broadly. This is not a deportation case. And those cases he, he himself has been bet on, um, but just for denial of entry. But even then, they're, they're maintaining this limitation. They, they don't really flesh it out, and it concerns me. Because they're going to keep hitting at this. What this all mean? What does this mean? This all means that we need to take this, and Congress needs to push against the lower courts. Because I'm telling you, what's going to happen here is the same thing that happened with Heller. We thought we had a big victory, but the lower courts are going to downright quote from Sotomayor. Um, Keep in mind they're attacking immigration in like a hundred different ways. So any little difference is not going to be covered by this. And, you know, for a number of cases, it takes years and years, and we never get to the Supreme Court. Now, look, you know, as as I speak here, um it could be we're 24 hours away from Kennedy announcing his retirement. And, you know, that will certainly change things but but even then I'm just warning you that Roberts is a consensus builder and they're not as bold when they're good as they are when they're bad. I mean you saw that with the internet sales tax case. Five justices willing to just uproot since 1824. Um you know they didn't go that bold on this and and it wouldn't be considered bold because you're not uprooting you're upholding um precedent and they didn't fully flesh it out the way Thomas did and and i and i am concerned by when robert says robert's addressed um thomas thomas's uh, concurrence about nationwide injunctions from district d- district judges in the last sentence he said let me just get this in front of me um he said that the disposition of the case makes it unnecessary to consider the propriety of the nationwide scope of the injunction issued by the district court that might be true, but that's being very naive because the courts are the lower courts pushed back even against the original injunction on this case. I mean, you know, you you got to look at what's going on. Now, I agree. Let's say this: the Supreme Court is ruling on another policy of another branch of government. I don't think they have the right to peek beyond the what's needed to resolve that case. But, you know, in the case of their own branch, I mean, police your pit bull there. I mean, get your dog off my lawn. You know, if they wanna keep themselves supreme, then act supreme to your own branch. And that's what you have to remember. Ultimately, we're arguing things that shouldn't have to be argued. You know, the, the pregnancy case. Everyone thinks, oh, that was an abo- the pregnancy center case. Everyone thinks, um, oh, that that, that was an abortion victory. It's nothing nothing to do with abortion. It was straight up just freedom of speech. It's like saying, you know, if you are a mustard company, you have to um, give people some information about other products and competitors. I mean, it's just ridiculous. What do you what are you saying? You can't coerce me to have to give your message. <laughs> you know, state of California, you guys wanna drive people to Planned Parenthood, go advertise yourself for it. You can't force other people to advertise. I'm saying even before you get on to religious liberty. And by the way, just a note on that case, it's amazing how strong, how amazingly strong Anthony Kennedy was in the, um, in the NIFLA case in his concurrence. I mean, in some ways, he was stronger than Thomas in the majority opinion. And there's an important lesson to be gleaned from there. Very important lesson. That, you know, where is this? I'm just reading his concurrence here. This separate writing seeks to to underscore that the apparent viewpoint discrimination here is a matter of serious constitutional concern. Meaning, he's saying it's not just um, First Amendment, he's actually saying viewpoint discrimination. That it's downright, you know, against religious people. Um, wh- wh- where is this? He said the rationale obviously sufficed to resolve the case, but he felt the need to give a further analysis on the, this um, viewpoint discrimination. And he says it do- it does appear that viewpoint discrimination is inherent in the design and structure of this act of California. This law is a. paradigmatic example of the serious threat presented when government seeks to impose its own message in the place of individual speech, thought, and expression. For here, the state requires primarily pro-life pregnancy centers to promote the state's own preferred message advertising abortions. This compels individuals to contradict their most deeply held beliefs, beliefs grounded in basic philosophical, ethical, or religious precepts um, or all of these. And the history of this act's passage and its under-inclusive Application suggests a real possibility that these individuals were targeted because of their beliefs, their beliefs, um, and and then like he he actually goes on to say that the legislature called this historic and quote forward thinking, and he said it is not forward thinking to force individuals to be an instrument for fostering public adherence to an ideological ideological point of view they find unacceptable. Folks, that should have been the one sentence majority from Kennedy in masterpiece. In other words, I'm not bashing what he said here. I agree with it. I'm just saying that underscores his capriciousness when it comes to Obergefell and masterpiece. Meaning it's funny how Kennedy recognizes he's he's pretty good on first amendment in the vacuum freedom of speech and and even some of the other justices when it doesn't implicate Politics, they're good on freedom of speech. That's why everyone's for like, you know, the hate speech when it's not overtly political, it's not like abortion or gay marriage or something. You know, a lot of the most of the Supreme Court justices are pretty strong on freedom of speech. Everyone, you know, that's always been very popular just because, you know, again, the courts are very political and you know, um, it's less divisive than the Second Amendment, so you know, the courts factor in politics, not the Constitution. So they're good on it. They've always been. I mean, there's nothing really new about this, but Kennedy is good even on religious liberty. But then he just loses himself when it comes to the homosexual agenda, meaning it's the same thing. Now, obviously, Kennedy is pro-life, is is pro-abortion. He's horrible on abortion jurisprudence, not just Rowan Casey, but as you saw a couple of years ago in Hellerstat, that you can't even have any basic health care regulations, the Gosnell Restrictions on, you know, just just mandating a certain amount of health standards on abortion clinics, is he says it burdens a fundamental right. So he's horrible on abortion, but he doesn't have it in his guts politically. He's not obsessed with it. The homosexual agenda, he's so obsessed with it that suddenly this point that you can't force a private individual to serve as an instrument to foster public adherence to an ideological point of view, he finds unacceptable. Gee, what happened to that and bake the damn cake? You know, and this is where Kennedy is, and 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 you kind of tie it into his concurrence on the travel ban in uh, Hawaii, v. Tr- Trump v. Hawaii. You know where he's like, yeah, Trump's. Uh, I don't really like this. You know, he he better watch out in his being mean to uh, religious religions. He's trying to show he's this paragon of religious um, liberty and religious tolerance, but the problem is he doesn't understand private property rights. <laughs> A the national private property rights of sovereignty. Now again, in this case, he joined Roberts because, like I said, I mean the third travel ban was it wasn't a travel ban. It was just you know better vetting for where we have no debt. It was nothing. It was so modest. Um, but clearly, we know where Kennedy would be in a true travel ban, and you know he doesn't understand sovereignty. He doesn't understand private property rights or at least maybe he does but then when it comes to the homosexual agenda he loses it and that's not a good thing what 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 that demonstrates and is that when you have a protected class that is in vogue in the legal culture you know Scalia was pointing this out already in the 90s um I'm forgetting it was that Colorado case um why am I losing it <laughs> what's the case it's in my book, chapter three in my book. That he he noted how obsessive the legal culture was in the homosexual agenda. It's like that's the untouchable, and this is what I warned in chapter three in my book, "Stolen Sovereignty." That Obergefell, there's no way you could say there's a constitutional right to gay marriage to force a state to you know redefine marriage. You, you just you can't say it, especially when Kennedy himself two years prior in Windsor said that states have full power. So how do you do that? And and the answer is what he did is he created a new constitutional right of dignity for homosexuals. And that's what I warned people at the time the same way he did that with Obergefell he's going to do that with religious liberty and indeed he basically said that in masterpiece just in that case they implied it they applied it in a discriminatory fashion unevenly and with animus but if you would apply it neutrally as the Arizona Appeals Court um, read into masterpiece in their own case, it would totally be fine. So it just further indicts Kennedy on that issue because he, you know, he recognizes this. Um, you know, freedom of speech secures freedom of thought and belief. This law imperils those liberties. That's how he ended his concurrence. Um, you know, so so he, here's the deal: these cases are no brainers. Now, part of why a lot of my colleagues think this was exceptional, I you know, I would I would agree this has been on net the least damaging Supreme Court um term in, in years. And Kennedy's generally been better um in you know than whatever, but you know, part of that is cuz my colleagues a lot of them disagree with me on I believe there were two really consequential bad cases as I spoke about yesterday, the internet sales tax and Carpenter. And you know, blowing up the Fourth Amendment includes you know third-party holding of data and subpoenaing that data is now your property and subject to search and seizure, um, to 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 the limitation of unreasonable search and seizure. You know, to be fair, that actually wasn't Kennedy and Carpenter. Kennedy actually was surprisingly on the right side of it. Um, it was it was Roberts, and then surprisingly, Roberts was the only good guy in the sales tax case. Well, I'm just telling you; those are pretty devastating outcomes for us. Um, you know, and then we had Demaya, and we had a number of other smaller immigration cases. We had denials of cert on immigration that I think were you know really lawless in themselves, allowing the lower courts to do this. so. Even in a good year, there's a lot of bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, if you had to use a you know, chart of a of a trend in, in, in a stock market. You know, we're on the incline the last couple of weeks, and you know, I don't know if you know when, when you guys are going to hear this, but if you're listening to this before Janice, I'm assuming we are going to win the labor union case, and that that is going to be huge. That's going to be one of the few judicial offense cases that are very consequential. But again, I, I have a hard time believing that public sector unions will be kaput because. The left doesn't give up. And the bottom line is, you could always be more progressive than Supreme Court precedent. You could always change it for a more progressive way, but you can't change it the other way around. This is the big problem, a very big problem. So, you know, I just want to note that it's not so much a flaw in these cases that they're not victories, that they're not. They don't agree with them. I'm just saying that what we're not remedying is all of the broader factors in this one-directional ratchet. That at the end of the day, they the other side cheats. You can't you can't beat them if they believe they could always overturn our stuff. And then the minute they overturn it, no matter how settled it is, that becomes more settled than what was settled for 200 years. You know what I mean? You you can't win that game and I just you know, in general, we are winning some judicial offense cases, but it's not worth it to have the supremacy. And again, I just wanna and I know I'm jumping all over the place, I just wanna clarify here what I mean by that is I agree that if you're a Supreme Court justice and you have a legitimate plaintiff, a pregnancy center, and says, Look, you know, these guys are forcing me to Cough up speech. I don't want to cough up that violates my conscience, violates my free, freedom of, of speech. I, I don't mind the judge saying this, this law is crap; it violates the First Amendment. But I'm just saying what what judicial, what opposing judicial supremacy means is that the other branches of government they could use their powers to kind of undermine that if they disagree, and you know the people ultimately have to decide that. But I'm just saying if California is going to push back here, then we have the right to push back in every other case. And, and that's my consistent view. I believe every case is really like that. Um, but the problem is our side doesn't view it that way. So in the 90% of cases that we actually lose you know, most of the time, um, and we treat it like that's it, that's the law of the land, we have major problems. Anyway, I just wanted to get you some baseline thoughts on this. There's a lot more going on um, in, in Congress. What are they ultimately going to do legislatively? We'll cover that next time. I'm going to have – God willing, on Thursday, Eileen Smith on the show. She's an angel mom that's trying to speak out on immigration for the first time. Uh, her unborn son was killed in a car accident that she was severely injured in uh, about six years ago in New Mexico. It was a sanctuary state at the time. This guy had four DUIs, and you know he should have been gone after the first one. And this is the problem with the sanctuaries is the problem with – not having visa tracking because this was no visa visa overstay guy from Honduras. Um, and and you're seeing in all the legislation that I'm seeing, even the Republicans are coddling all these drunk driving illegal aliens. It's a very big problem. There's an epidemic of drunk driving illegal aliens. And you know, often it's hard to stop the prevent the first one, but after the first one, we should they should be out of here. That's for sure. And um, we need to make that a reality, and we're going to hear her story on Thursday. There's also problems the government is expanding the ethanol mandate, and I, I don't have time to go into that, but we're getting screwed on a lot of fiscal issues. But anyway, look, take heart. These are good victories, but we need to use them to prove that the lower courts have been proven irresponsible and shut it down. Otherwise, we're not going to enjoy the fruits of those victories the way the left enjoys their Supreme Court victories because – Again, the legal profession, lower lower courts will just chip away at it. So let me know your thoughts. Email me at dharwitz at crtv.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Till next time. This has been another episode of the conservative conscience.